Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, April 30th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dexter Filkins has a long piece in The New Yorker on the Trump White House National Security Advisor, John Bolton. He's an ideologue, a hard ass, and more hawkish than a peddler in a Moroccan bazaar. The article seems really fair, has a number of quotes, some on the record, some off. But one of the on the record quotes is as follows. You know what? Let us let the New Yorker's in-house or, I guess, on-webpage audio reader do the honors. Groombridge, the former aide, said, John is thinking, to the extent I can modify or mollify the president's actions, I will. He is truly a patriot. But I wonder how he goes into work every day. Because deep in his heart, he believes the president is a moron. I like how this guy reads. Very elevated. Similarly, let us examine this quote. A Western diplomat who knows Bolton told me, The trouble for Bolton is, Trump does not want war. He does not want to launch military operations. To get the job, Bolton had to cut his balls off and put them on Trump's desk. John Bolton had this to say about the article. Tweet, A recent article quoted an embittered former employee whom I haven't seen or spoken to in several years. He has no knowledge of my thinking. His remarks are contrary to my views and completely off the mark. The reporter never asked for comment. Getting a little testy there. And speaking a little of testies, it does not seem to be the castration quote to which Bolton referred. It was probably the moron quote. Now I'm thinking it might be hard for the New Yorker to call for comment on that particular one. Um, yes, sir. Would you say that in your heart of hearts, the president is a moron? Just checking here. Or is it more accurate to say that deep in your soul, you believe the president to be a barely literate mouth breather? Or in the spirit of complete accuracy, is the best way to put it that in the dark reaches of your unconscious, you believe our commander-in-chief to have no greater command of the facts than a Portuguese water dog has of algebra. We just want to be accurate, sir. Or maybe, maybe this would be better if I read it in the audio guy's voice. A close friend of Bolton said, Bolton is a patriot, but in his heart, he knows that he would rather trust an overtired four-year-old to perform a hernioplasty than to trust the president to run our country. How's that sound? Is that right? Okay, good. So we understand you're giving no comment. Just one more thing, and this is more about how fastidious the New Yorker is about fact-checking. We were just wondering, I don't know if there's a really good way to say this, uh, your balls. Can you currently confirm the whereabouts of your balls? Okay, then. Thank you, sir. And I will put you down for the automatic renewal for next year. Thanks for calling. On the show today, I spiel about Stacey Abrams' demure declination 
But first coders, they're just like people, but with long strings of numbers. In fact, says journalist Clive Thompson, these are the people who hold huge sway over most of our waking hours, and we just don't understand them. Clive is here to discuss his new book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The magic boxes that control our lives, we have respect for them, but also fear. The one thing they're not is personal. They don't seem like people. But of course, there are people behind every phone in our pocket and everything on our desktop. Who are these people? How does the personality of these people, these coders, how does that translate to the machines, to the software, and then to our lives? This is the central question of Clive Thompson's book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the world. Clive, thanks for coming in. Ah, good to be here, man. I don't think I've had you on the show, but I've long wanted to, and I also want to thank you for dressing almost exactly like your author photo in the book. Same <laughs> jacket. You. So that's always appreciated. Not shaved this time, though. Yeah. No, it's cool. You look like you've been up all night writing code, and you do write code, right? A uh, little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I started, I did it when I was a kid, uh, you know, back on the old, like, Commodore 64 is sure. basic, you know? You Donkey plug it Kong came, came with that? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I kind of dropped it in my 20s and 30s. But in my 40s, I'm like, okay, I want to write about coders. Let me figure out just what languages are using. Let me be able to talk to them a little bit about this stuff. So the uh, having read the book and just looking at the subtitle, you're talking about tribes. That means anthropology is yeah. at play. How much is it a driving force that these guys have a chip on their shoulder a little bit? Yeah. And it's hard to maybe rein them in or, and maybe this isn't true, but it's hard to get them to accept responsibility because they see themselves as the good guys, the Jedis against the uh, force of the Empire, the underdog, all those self-serving stories that sometimes people who wield great power irresponsibly tell themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that is... Um I think that is true uh, definitely for some of the folks that are astride some of the very large uh, social media firms right now. They came in in the early aughts. Uh, keep in mind when like these big social media companies we talk about, Facebook, Twitter, whatnot, Instagram, when they were all founded, it was in this fallow period, mm-hmm. right? So the dot-com collapse had happened. 99? Uh, th- yeah, 99, 2000. Yeah. So in the sort of five years after that, Tech is considered kind of a wasteland again, right? You yeah. know, there's not a lot of money in it. Yeah. There's not a lot of uh, uh, of jobs in it. There's not a lot of attention You're paid an, to yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of people lost their money. Right. Pets.com. Maybe the pets. biotech com. is the thing to invest right. in. Yeah. 
And so then they start dorking around with like blogging. And out of that comes these ideas for like, hey, the social networking, which is sort of feels a bit like blogging at first. Like I've just got my, my Facebook page and you're checking it and I'm posting pictures and whatnot. It all seemed really silly at first. In fact, Facebook, this is the thing that came up in my research. In the early days of Facebook, like they literally could not get any software engineers to work for them because yeah. everyone thought that this was this dorky, stupid trend that was going to die any, any minute now. So, so they, they really have, you know, they really had this, this I think, this feeling of them themselves as being these insurgents who are building something new and they were being ignored and now they kind of have the last laugh. But the world has just grown so much bigger than it was 20 or 30 years ago, right? You know, like when I was getting into coding when I was a kid in the 80s, it was a tiny fairly tiny industry compared to today. Now there's software running, everything. And there's so many more people that flood in from different corners of the world that um, it's actually, I think, in a healthy way, becoming a more diverse ecosystem, right? Well, okay, I want to ask a few questions about what you said. One is that last thing you said. So how much does the world of coders reflect the world of the world or the world of America or even the world of people smart enough to maybe have gotten the education to... uh, be yeah. a top coder. Well, in, in in one sense, it's not terribly reflective because it's still a pretty, uh, you know, young and pretty white and male group, right? Disproportionately, we're and talking about— By the about, way, let me interrupt to yeah. say that young is less white in America, but in this yeah, group, no, it's you're more right. white. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the youth— And is, by the way, uh, let me interrupt yeah, again. Yeah, sure. White, but it also very Asian, a lot more Asian. Uh, yeah, uh, disproportionately yeah. more Asian than you'd find, yeah. Um, in a weird way, the youth and the maleness is, is a specific thing. Like, I mean, you, you talk to, like, middle-aged coders, and they get— pushed out of this industry, you know, and it's really interesting because that's, this is in, in, a, in a weird unspoken way, the ageism is where some of the trouble begins because you don't have people around that, you know, could tell you, oh, we, w- we went to this rodeo 15 years ago yeah. with like abuse online, guys, you know, uh, this happened in Usenet, you know, back in the 90s, this is what's going to happen if you start this again, if you create Twitter, which is basically a massive discussion board, what's going to happen is what happened on Usenet, they had no one around old enough to tell yeah. them, right, yeah. because they were all young. <laughs> Uh, and they're all guys, and they're not great at taking perspective of people that have different experiences, like women, who, if you'd asked, frankly, any of them or had them involved, would have said, guys, <laughs> this is going to turn into a vector for, like, coordinated harassment, right? Because, again, we've seen that on Usenet 10 years earlier, right? Had some of those people, had some of those women on board, could have raised that flag. Commercial software like Uber, you know, this is going to, this is going to change the way people drive. Um, without actually having any understanding necessarily of the lives that they're going to affect. Actually, Uber's a good example. You know, imagine how different that company would have been if some of the people involved in building it or on their board were drivers, right? You know, like they would have said, you know, look, what you're building here is something that is going to be amazing, an amazing win for riders. Kind of a terrible deal for drivers. It's going to turn it into like, you know, this piecemeal work. It's going to make it really hard to make a living at it. Uh, well, it th- could be. I mean, yeah. the actual current plight of uh, sure. New York cab drivers is pretty bad, but what yeah, yeah. really disrupts, and I'm sure Travis Kalanick didn't think of this for the first couple of years, is people who hawked everything to buy a medallion and are now committing suicide at a higher rate. True, uh, but, it, it, but it also, it, it, that's very true. Uh, uh, but it, it also like started to, um, you know, you could, you, you don't really have to look too far to find a lot of stories of people who sort of work their way into the middle classes in New York and Chicago and Boston. Uh, by being an immigrant coming in and driving, right? And right, they didn't right, get rich, yeah. but they, they actually got like a stable living. That's kind of gone. Now, with Zuckerberg and Facebook, he was looking at it and thinking, huh, you know, I've got everyone looking at their pages all day long, their friends' pages, but it's actually kind of slow. And I can speed this up if we create this news feed, this like new creation, this new way of changing the, um, the attentional 
uh, focus of America, of the world, right? You know, you're talking about Facebook's newsfeed, something that impacts, you know, a third of the planet, you know, yeah. thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, all these different countries that have wildly different circumstances on the ground, what's happening in Myanmar, what's happening in India, what's happening in Russia, what's happening in these different places. So, and he would walk around the office talking about how I want to improve information flows. Like he was just thinking of this as like the information zipping back and forth. And I think that was some of the blindness to what the side effects might be. Yeah. Because, you know, engineers get very focused on just solving the problem in front of them. Once you've defined it as a problem of like speeding up the throughput of how we pay attention to each other, how we talk to each other, you're just focused on, on torquing that, getting it faster, getting there to be more, getting people to stare at it more. And it is hard to look up from, uh, from the task at hand to the larger social impact. But to be fair to him, how could he have known, I mean, in his wildest dreams, how could he have known the scale that it would get to? I mean, I like doing this podcast, but what if you told me in five years, two-thirds of America is going to be listening to it? Then every misstatement of fact I make will have these huge repercussions, or I can't even think of the analogies, like other people will be able to somehow influence this baby. I think that <laughs> I think that sometimes these things get bigger than any human can handle, and that's where the government needs to come in. And where I fault all these developers is their libertarian streak is always anti-government, and no one ever says, actually, at this point, unless I'm wrong, seems to me that no one ever says, at this point, we need regulation. But it seems like there are certain points where we needed regulation. They, they, it's true that they generally don't, they generally don't like, obviously, regulating uh, their industry. It's not efficient. Uh, it slows things down. Uh, um, I mean, like, it, it, the weird thing about the libertarianism of Silicon Valley is that um, it's, it's actually, in one sense, they're actually slightly less libertarian than the average Democrat. Studies have found that really weird. But it's because they're, they're completely happy with government intervention in things like um, income disparities or the environment or like whatnot. Stuff that has nothing to do with them. Right, yeah. Once yeah. it has to do with the running <laughs> of their company, particularly yeah. how you hire and fire talent, you know, then they have a lot of opinions. Uh, and they actually want it to be more hands-off than even hardcore Republicans, right? So they're, they're actually kind of a weird political mix. But you are correct in that, like, um, there's very little desire for government intervention in what they're doing. And this, this is, I think, this leaves us at a very interesting moment right now. Because what, what you just said about how Facebook is almost too big to manage, um, that was said to me by people when I researched this book. And I would say to them, like, you know, all right, so how would you rein in some of the problems that things like the algorithm in the news feed uh, or the algorithm of YouTube, you know, face? And they'd pause for like 15 silent seconds and they'd go, I don't really know. Yeah, I've heard Elizabeth Warren laying out a big plan and some of it seems doable, but it's really small, like not letting Amazon promote its own products in its search. Sure. That seems doable. Yeah. What percent of the quote unquote problem will that solve? Right, right, exactly. You could you could stop and, you know, arguably should stop the sharing of data between different services. You know, you could silo that stuff, but that doesn't fundamentally get at the sheer scale of something like Instagram, the sheer scale of something like uh, Facebook. Uh, I don't even know. think the data and the privacy are the main problem. So I others mean, may disagree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the, the how it warps, how that news feed is so vulnerable to propaganda and being warped and just untruth. Well, I think actually, you know, if you wanted to talk about one reform that's really interesting, um, that doesn't get talked about a lot because I think no one knows how to get how to get there from here. Yeah, is the financial models right? 
like one of the things that is that, that drives these companies forward is they're all advertising based, which means they all want people to stare at them as much as possible. And so, one question is: Could you step back from that? Could you have a different financial model that says, "Okay, here's Facebook. Um, it's free mostly, mm-hmm. but if you want the really awesome tools for setting up particularly great groups, you know, some stuff that's like maybe almost more like Slack." You know, you pay a dollar a month or two bucks a month. And there's enough people in the develop world that pay that, that they're suddenly making tons of money and they don't need ads anymore. And if you don't have to actually optimize for people staring at you all the time, you dramatically change uh, the way that service would work. So, yes, are there things you could do? Sure. How you take a company that has a thriving business model already and get it to adopt a new one, I have no idea. Yeah, when you ask the people, how do you change, and they pause for large chunks of time, I wonder how much of that pause is spent well. First, you got to ask them to make less money. I don't know if they even ever consider that. Right. How do you get them to change and still be as wildly profitable? And how do you get the venture capitalists that are funding this stuff from the beginning? Let's leave these big companies aside. Let's look at new companies that are coming along. Anything that gets funded in the tech sphere, by and large, is funded by um, venture capital that wants to see uh, it wants to see one of two things. It wants to see a crashing burnout. That's fine. It wants to see a massive skyrocketing hockey stick success. It doesn't know what to do with something in the middle, with just a business that's like making okay money but not growing up, like yeah. n- n- not exploding. The weird thing is, you and I, outside the world of venture capital, would look at something like that and go. That's a great business. Yeah. That's making lots of money. You know, yeah. it's, it's growing along. It's a nice you know? steady return on investment. Nice return on In investment. In fact, Bernie Madoff built a whole Ponzi scheme on right. that. Right, <laughs> right. And so venture capital essentially pushes people towards unsustainable metastatic growth yeah. as opposed to growth that can be managed by a normal uh, human being astride a normal company. Um, the most sustainable and I think, you know, kind of artfully run tech companies often start with a model where they, they make money day one and they don't need to go crazy. Like, I mean, you look at something like Kickstarter here in New York City. It's kind of a weird little company, solved an interesting problem for people, made money with its first transaction, continued making money, didn't need to sort of, you know, swallow the whole world and has thus remained a kind of a, like a, a company that does some interesting good things with, you know, relatively minimal harm, right? Yeah. You know, like uh, there's this one entrepreneur, the guy that did 37 Signals said, you know, one of the nice things about charging people for your goods is you get to call them customers instead of users. Yeah. Uh, and you're sort of aligned with them. But yeah. I got to say this whole, obviously Facebook's a huge problem. Twitter yeah. is too. So now an advertising model has become uh, seen as, it's a pejorative. Tim Cook can say, well, we charge, aren't we great? Yeah, your phones are a thousand bucks. I just think (laughs) that there's going to be, if the pendulum swings the other way, we're going to find a ton of unintended consequences of everything being a subscription model. Here Here in MySpace, like in podcasting, we have all this righteousness. There's this new entrant into the space who wants to charge subscriptions. And oh my God, are all the podcasters prattling on about podcasts should be free and they all believe it. It's like, yeah, but you're also doing podcasts about how bad uh, how bad Facebook is for not being free. There's no inherent good or bad. Well, and here's one. Here's as one Twitter engineer said to me, and this is true. Uh, okay, we could have charged some nominal fee for Twitter from the beginning, uh, but it would not have grown anywhere near the rate it did. And the upside of that growth was that it reached large audiences such that it became useful as a conduit for public conversation for neglected voices, right? Like, you know, 
a, a lot of the conversation around uh, around you know police abuse of power and yeah. Black Lives Matter was catalyzed by open conversation on these very thriving platforms. Me too, same thing, right? Do you think the criticism of every app that the tech community and coders make is solving their problems, not solving our problems? Do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, in, in a weird way, it's both a criticism and a compliment, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that, like, you know, I think actually it's a good thing in a weird way that software developers often start by just solving their own problem because that's where often the best stuff comes from. Like, you have a problem, you solve it, and lo and behold, there are 10,000 one million people who have the exact same problem and you're off to the races. And uh, so that's actually a great thing to do. Um, I would not change that one whit. What I would do is I would expand the amount of people who are developing software so that you get people solving problems that they have that are different from my problem. Like, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm solving weird journalist problems, right? No one has it except for my weird journalist friends. Uh, let's get some other people that are, again, like in, you know, in nursing, in social work to solve software problems by doing that stuff because they're going to bring up answers to questions that I wouldn't even think to ask. That's, that's what I think. Uh, I think it's good that software developers keep their head down solving their own problems. I'd like to see a greater array of people doing that. Clive Thompson is the author of Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. He writes for Wired. He writes for New York Times Magazine. Thanks a lot, Clive. I had a great time. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. Stacey Abrams will not be running for Senate in Georgia. This excites some people because maybe she's running for president. It's actually disappointing if you care about Democrats taking over the government. Now, let me say this. If you run for office, if you're a person running for office, I do recognize that first thing that you are is a person. And I respect that. And if you don't want to run for any reason, it seems pretty rational not to run. You're putting yourself through hell. So who the heck am I to say you're wrong for not running? It would be unfeeling of me to say you gotta run. Although if she runs for president now, I will falter a little bit. Want to know who I do fault right now as we sit here? Beto and Julian. They are on presidential quests that are quixotic. Because if either of them wanted to enter the Texas Senate race against John Cornyn, I think they could win. Well, let's be clear. I think Castro's quest is quixotic. Beto is probably not really quixotic more like a real long shot that is technically not insane. Maybe it would have worked. I'm thinking of Sidney Carton from The Tale of Two Cities. You got your misspent youth, kind of a fancy lad. In the end, he's only remembered for giving a good speech. Beto O'Rourke, the Cartonian quest for the presidency. Now, one fellow on Twitter pointed out about Stacey Abrams declining to run. It is not her job to be the savior of the progressive movement. Well, okay. But if you're going to be a public servant, there is an element of service to the public about that, service to the cause, to the party, to the movement. 
to less grandiosely the people of Georgia. I understand if she believes that the deck is stacked against her in terms of voter suppression in her state, but it should be pointed out that were she to run for Senate, it would not be against Brian Kemp, who was literally the guy who controlled all the voting machines. So maybe it'd be nice to run against someone who doesn't control all the voting machines. Again, I support Stacey Abrams on her decision on the personal level. But when I hear the justifications that abound about why she's not running, I got a little less convinced. This is Tia Mitchell, the reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the podcast Politically Georgia. And I could see her just looking at that as something she felt would be not the most, not the place where she could do the most good, Mm -hmm. that she could have the most impact, that could have the most action, hit the ground running type of job. That's not really what being a junior senator in the minority party would be. Okay, it's more likely to be the minority party if Republican David Perdue gets reelected, isn't it? Mitchell returned to the hit the ground running idea. She's thinking, service. She's thinking these goals of, you know, expanding health care and voter access and census count. So in her mind, I think she's like, where can I really get in there and make some changes? The U.S. Senate could possibly have a say in health care, maybe, and writing the rules and appropriating money for the census. Is it me? Am I overly impressed by senators and the Senate? I think senators are a fairly big deal. Am I wrong? I know that the Senate is slow and deliberate, but what are you going to do? Join the House? Or are you gunning for the Department of Health and Human Services? I do not think the Democratic Party put Abrams up against the president to rebut the State of the Union because they want Stacey Abrams to have a slot as a department head in a future Democratic administration. And from what's been reported, Chuck Schumer was pretty eager to elevate Stacey Abrams' status, should she have gotten elected, to that beyond one of just a garden-variety senator. Think about for a second Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, how she is, I don't know, the third or fourth most consequential Democratic politician in America. She just did it by force of will and skill at media. Now, here are some of AOC's characteristics. She is a representative, not a senator. She represents an extremely safe Democratic seat, and she picks fights with the Democratic establishment. Stacey Abrams would come in, and none of those things would be true. The Democrats would love her. The progressives would love her. The upstarts would love her. The rest of the Senate would love her. I can't tell Stacey Abrams to do what she doesn't want to do, But I do think Senator Stacey Abrams is more powerful than, hey, there's Stacey Abrams. Now, Abrams herself gave quite a valid reason for not running when she told the AJC, quote, I know where my strengths lie for me is establishing systems and protocols, finding solutions and trying to push for results. The Senate is a great institution, but for me, it's not the role that best suits those needs. So this leads me to think maybe there's another possibility. The vice presidency. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to say the presidency. And I know that when Abrams was on The View, she said, I think you don't run for second place. Okay. But a presidential bid at this point, like I said, quixotic. The vice presidency, that might be Aragornian, a character who strategized well and navigated challenges pretty realistically.
And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They're not in danger of losing their jobs, but if they do, I want to advise them to code. Oh, not computer, semaphore. I'm thinking of taking this thing in a more overtly nautical direction. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She, too, has decided not to run for Senate in Georgia. The gist. While Mr. Pesca is a great patriot, he believes that our president is of an intellect on par with a bag of doorstops. Umpru dapru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.